You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Bracken, you look like you're, I wouldn't say back from the dead, but back from the dead. How are you feeling? I would say today I, I turned the corner. Yesterday I was rounding the corner. Today I'm I'm turning the corner. I don't know if there's a difference. Sure. You were approaching the corner yesterday. I thought yesterday for the first time, I think I might be getting over this, over this. And then today I woke up and... I like my first morning breath and you swallow and like everything in my throat what didn't hurt. Nothing hurt mm-hmm. in my throat today. If I push on it on the left side, I still have pain in my throat. Like stuff swollen in there. But no pain in my nose, in my head, in my throat. Just the fatigue still there. But even that's lessened. I'm not a zombie anymore. Good. Yeah, the first thing when we hopped on today is when we were chatting with Callie Schweikart last week, your eyes had this like gloss to them that they typically <laughs> don't have. And I knew you were plowing through. You were on, you were, you know, trashed up on Dayquil and you were pushing through. And now you're like, you got, you got this radiance about you today. So I'm optimistic for you this upcoming weekend. Thank you. Ran 65 minutes this morning. Felt pretty good. Uh, didn't cough once during the run. Blew my nose about a million times, but... That's to be expected. That's why you keep mm-hmm. your roll of toilet paper on your Nordic track. Uh, I farmer blow wherever I am. Even indoors? Well, I have a towel. I'll farmer blow into that. And then, oh. yeah, which is gross still. but And sometimes indoors. Let's be honest. Then I mix my towels up and I wipe my face with that. And... It's, it's all yours. It's all yours. <laughs> That's true. You, uh, you want to hear something. Um, not, not that I'm really condoning that the listeners should do this, but. I want to play a little game with you, Bracken, real quick. (laughs) Would you like to play a game? Nothing too weird or anything. So, you know, from time to time, I like to do these, like, stupid workouts that are really almost looking look pointless on paper. They're, like, grindy and dumb. And and some would say, you know, they lack, I don't know, reasoning, we will call it. Well, I did one of those on Saturday. My shins have been a little sore from ramping up mileage, which is normal, nothing of concern. So I decided I wanted a longer grindy session on the bike, the assault bike. And so I did one of my famous uh, burpee ladders, mm-hmm. and um, and it was uh, 100 calories on the assault bike, 100 burpees, 90 calories on the assault bike, 90 burpees. And I did the ladder all the way down to 10 and 10 for time. So I have three questions for you. And by the way, if any of you are out there and injured and want to try this, it's 550 burpees and 550 calories. You can also trade it out and go one mile, 100 burpees, 0.9 miles, 90 burpees. You could do it in a run format. But I want you to, one, guess my time. And I worked at like an RP of eight, eight and a half. Okay. Kirk, this is scary close to workouts I've been doing called leg builder for myself and for other athletes. But I start at 10 and go up to 100. Oh, you go the other way. That's worse. And sometimes it's lunges. Sometimes it's burpee broad jumps. Sometimes it's, uh, well, it's mostly those two. But then sometimes fan bikes, sometimes rowers, sometimes skiers, mm-hmm. sometimes vertical feet. But we're on the same page here. I like this. I'll tell you what. Before my first breakout season, breakout in quotes, where I had three top fives in the U.S. National top sixes, 
I did this stuff when I was injured. I was doing these like I can't go for a long run, so I'm going to find another way to go 90 minutes on the weekends and mix yeah. it up. And anyways, and then I had a great season, so I'm kind of going back to some of my roots learning from my past. So three questions are, how long do you think it took me? And then I am sore beyond belief in two places in my body. Okay. And so I want you to guess the time. I'll give you a buffer of five minutes either way, and then uh, price is right rules. And then the two places, I'm super sore. Right. I'm going to say... And if you looked at my Strava, don't don't play I dumb. Haven't. Okay. I haven't been on... I haven't even... I have a Strava dump coming soon off my watch. Okay. I've got like two weeks of Strava. So I'm going to say it was... I did a 16-mile long run the day before at a steady rate and then did this to follow. So there was a little fatigue, but I was like still working pretty good. I'm going to say 84 minutes. 84? Yeah. I was like 82.12. Okay. 82. Nice. Or 82.20. Look at you. You swear You swear on everything. You weren't Strava stalking. I put an 80-minute cap on these workouts for people. And their goal is that eventually one day they can finish the whole workout. Well, you also lost because I said price is right rules, but I'll give it to you because you're pretty damn close. All right. And, and by the way, anybody out there, if you feel like just putting yourself through absolute hell... Give it a try. Let me know how it goes. Okay, and where do you think I'm sore? Which this this surprised me. It surprised you. Maybe that changes things. I would be sore hamstring insertion point in inner groin and then uh, pec delt area. But I'm going to say intercostals. Ooh, okay. Um, good. Intercostals, for those of you who don't know, is those muscles that you can't really see Um inside of your core they're not the the sexy eight pack but those that they do the real work inside of that core um slightly sore but not one of them but it is actually sore okay i am the most sore in my erectors my back all the way from my tailbone up to my shoulder blades all the way up i mean sore to like the touch if you poked me so my my back right along my spine on both sides and then i would not have expected this my forearms are blown out were you pulling like crazy on that? No, it's from, it's from, I think I was cushioning each burpee with like an eccentric from my fingertips touching the ground. I, it's a hardwood floor that I was doing these on. So hmm. I think I was eccentric, like very cautiously flopping on the ground every time. My forms are so blown out all the way up to my elbow. I, I've never experienced this before from burpees. So I figured this is a losing battle for you and I was right. But those are the two places I'm super sore. Wow. Forearms. I, I, I was way off. Okay on the time. It's way yeah. off on the soreness. Yeah. Who would have thought? Anyways, I wouldn't have predicted that either. So, Well, you weren't the only spectacular performance this weekend, Kirk. We saw two American records fall on the roads. Impressive. Impressive. Did you watch this? Um, no, I watched the highlights afterwards. Why don't you tell everybody what happened this weekend? Well, the Houston Marathon was this weekend, and beforehand, Sarah Hall had talked about going after the American half marathon record. And she's consistently undervalued, I think, mm -hmm. by the American running community. I think she's kind of explained away a lot of time when she has a good result rather than just celebrating how good she is. And she lived in the shadows of her husband for a good bit. Yeah. So is she 38 now, 37? I believe she is the same age as me, give or take a year. So somewhere around there. Because her husband is as well, Ryan. Yeah, and she ran, she did it. She set the half marathon 
U.S. record, which was 107.15. Incredible. So that is incredible in and of itself. But then on the other side, right before the race, you heard rumors that Kira D'Amato, who I actually talked, we talked about her on here maybe two years ago at the start of COVID. She was making a comeback as a runner. She had taken like 10 years off of running. She'd been an all-American cross-country runner in college. I think she was like, I might get this wrong, sixth at D1 cross-country nationals. And then tried running professionally and just struggled with stress fractures and needed a surgery. Didn't get the surgery because she didn't have insurance mm-hmm. and basically just went into real estate for herself. Or maybe before that, she started working at an investment firm. Then she got insurance, got the surgery, but wasn't running. Took 10 years off of training, came back at the start of COVID, and we talked about her because I had gone out to do a 5K time trial around this time. Mm-hmm. And she went out and ran like 15-0 in a solo 5K time trial. Mm-hmm. You used it for a point of reference, I think, or something at the time. Yeah, just to show how all things are relative. Yeah, because I think we were getting slack for bragging about our times at that point. And so, we, yeah, we had to, we had to justify, justify it. That's what it was. Good memory, Kirk. We talk, that we talk in times because times are our currency as runners. And by the way, anybody, I was just doing the math. Sarah Hall, to go back, ran 5.08 mile pace for a half marathon. Yes. 16 flat for a 5K, basically. 60, actually, probably like 15.59. Yeah, 15.56 to 59, yeah. Anyways, okay, point being, we're mere mortals talking to you based on these people's <laughs> performance, but continue. So she took 10 years off of running, essentially, and then came back. And she ran like 3-something, 320 in her first marathon back and then got better. But anyways, we saw her two years ago, and we called out like, this was incredible. She's on the comeback trail. It's inspiring. And she's way faster than us. And then she uh, starts talking that she's going to try to break the U.S. marathon record in Houston. Now, Houston's a fast mm-hmm. marathon. But let's think of the women who haven't set this record. Des, mm-hmm. Shalane Flanagan. Mm-hmm. Hall, mm-hmm. Craig, all of our Olympians, all of our, um, I mean, Shalane Flanagan won New York, Des yeah. won Boston. None of these women hold it. So this is a big deal. And she went out and did it. And she ran two, two nineteen twelve. Wild. Which is five. I'm going to go, I'm going to go type that into the Google as well. Real 19. Quick. 518.8. I looked it up. Okay. But it's 519 pace. So she ran basically like 16.25 for every 5K all the way through. And how old is she? Six maybe. And she's 38. 37. So I think Hall's probably 38. She's 37. So they're on the tail end of what people would consider their their careers. And they both unheralded as both are unheralded and called their shot and then went out and did it. And Mm -hmm. she went out at 16.25 her first 5K. People were calling for the blow up to come. And she was like 1625, 1622, 1630, 1625. And then she closed it down and closed it down. And her last 5K was 518 pace. And her first 5K was 518 pace. She just cranked all the way through. So two women set our half marathon and our marathon records. And both of them ran disgustingly fast times to do so. It's amazing. I mean, we've really 
distance running in America has come a long ways, especially since like the, I would say early to mid seventies, we have been on a, a fast track to fast times. You have shoe innovation, you have everything that's come along. These records continually are made and broken. And like to set them at this point in time, like these are all stout records and you take two people who on paper, even looking at the current um, corral of us women, you wouldn't have handpicked either of them to set the us records. Not only that, but then you got a guy like me who's 38, going to be 39 in a few months, and you see these two women who are also in the same age range, and you go, there are so many reasons to keep hustling and to keep pushing and using these women as inspiration. Like, for so many reasons, seeing both of them do what they did is very inspiring. It's not easy to be inspired these days. That's inspiring. No, it's, it's almost shocking that they both pulled it off on the same day. And it's almost unfortunate because it kind of steals thunder from each other. Mm-hmm. What were the conditions? I didn't see the the specs. It must have been a pretty good one, huh? I think it was a little chilly and windy. Oh, so there was a breeze. But that's always better than hot and humid. True. But the the interesting thing is that I would have bet on Sarah to break the marathon record before she'd break the half record. And she broke the half. And Kira was left off the selection for the world's team. She was the fourth ranked U.S. marathoner, but it was like she had to run like two forty, like three twenty, two forty eight, or something like that. Then two twenty six, two twenty two, and her previous two. Talk about a comeback! And then so like she was on tra- her trajectory was pointing towards something good, but so she's now our record holder, and she's not going to Worlds this year. Isn't that wild? Yeah, and that's the problem with selection processes to make a team. It's why it's cool that we have Olympic trials where some countries have a real political process. But it's also the downside is that you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Mm-hmm. When you select a team, it's your best decision on that day. And here, a month later, the day has changed. And suddenly we have someone that could theoretically contend for a global medal. Um, not that women on our team can't because we already have Molly Seidel on the team who won an Olympic medal. But it's just crazy how quickly things change in sport. Yeah, I go back and forth on that selection process versus like a trials because you have something so big and long like a marathon. And yes, it's a ways out from the Olympics, but like having two peaks at a distance that big, not that far apart is really tough. And a lot of times you'll see people put all their eggs in the Olympic trials basket, and then they're just a slightly downgraded version of themselves by the time they get to the Olympics. Whereas like if you have a selection process and people are handpicked based on their results over time, you might even be more likely to know what you're getting once it comes to the race that matters the most. So like I do waffle back and forth on the selection process versus the, the trials process. It could go either way. You could argue either. You could. I think for the marathon, you can't have a trial for world championship. Because there's a, there's a world championship every year. Right. And so you would have to peak for trials and then peak for worlds. And those are your two peaks for the year. And you wouldn't be able to really do anything else. You would race twice per year and maybe stuff in between, but it wouldn't be worthwhile. So that's mm-hmm. it. That would be your whole life as a marathoner. <laughs> would be to a trial mm-hmm. in a world every year. So, but for the shorter distances, like I don't know how you, how you guarantee you get the best people at Olympics. Right. It's tough. Because how many times prior to this Olympic cycle did we have our our Olympians show up like on crutches, basically? Yeah, that's exactly it. It's tough. That is, yeah. I thought when Sarah Hall crossed the finish line and seeing her beefy husband, Ryan Hall, 
Like that, that embrace is pretty cool. I noted that he was wearing an A-Shock hat. I don't know if you noticed that, but he was, he was repping uh, his sponsor's gear. And I was like, oh man, he's in deep. Because our, our Spartan contracts all ended on the first of, of the year, and we haven't heard anything from them. But Ooh. Ryan Hall must be taken care of there wearing that A-Shock hat out there, I thought. He's got a big name. Now, he's he's an interesting athlete where he retired before the Super Shoe advancement, mm-hmm. and his wife continued through. Well, and Ryan Hall set the American record in the marathon, did he not, in his Olympic trials back in 2012 or whatever it was? And he, he has his, his, his record at Boston. But Boston is a, it was a wind-aided course that day. And I believe Boston's point-to-point, so I don't know if it, like he ran 204 or something, but it didn't count, but it does. Is that what it was? Yeah. Mm. But he did that, his half marathon 59 and change, and his marathon 204, he ran in the A6 hyperspeed, which were my first true racing flats. I loved them. They're fantastic, but they are not marathon shoes by today's standards. And he even talked about it the other day, but he said, what do you think I could run if I did 59 minutes in these shoes? What would I run these days in super shoes? Oh man. That's a valid question. Mm-hmm. You want to know what my first road flat was? I, I'm, you're a shoe guy, so you'll probably know it. Can I get try guessing? Yeah, you can. I'm going to say the Mayfly. Uh-uh. It was an Adidas. Oh, I don't know then. The Adidas Cubato. It was like four and a half ounce, ounces. It was the lightest one that had come out at the time. Yeah. Wow. Burned through that baby. Got him at discount at the outlet store. It's a good find. Down at Campbell University, we were sponsored by ASICS, and so they gave us the hyperspeed. Mm. And I wore that baby for everything. All my interval work, all my road races. Loved it. We had a Brooks sponsorship at Oshkosh, believe it or not. We got free Brooks shoes and stuff, but I didn't like mine, so I just wore them around. Which was a bummer at that time. Of <laughs> Now they're much better. Nowadays, Brooks has improved. Yep. But, yeah, so, so you said um, – so we got a lot, we want to dive into a listener question bracket to kick uh, yeah. kick off today's episode before we get into uh, the heart of things today. Yeah, our, our question of the of the week comes from Eric McIntyre. By the way, this might be something we're doing moving forward. If you can't tell, we might be creating a little more structure over here at the Running Public. So hang on to your butts, folks. Yeah, uh, and I believe you work with him. Yeah, Eric's been an athlete of mine uh, over a year, year and a half, maybe now. And he just had a sweet 5K PR on base training. So, Eric, fist bump. Oh, look at that. Yep. Well, he said, uh, I'd message Kirk directly, but this feels like it could be a Bracken question as well. Oh, So I'm sorry that your athlete's cheating on you with me, but I assume this is about shoes. Doing me dirty. What is your opinion on on running shoes? On shoes. Mm. Not just what's my opinion on shoes, but the brand on. Like oh, the on cloud? Like that? that. on cloud. Yeah. Specifically their trail line. All right. It's a two-part question. I'm going to stop it there. Kirk, have you ever run an on? No, but I, I work in a gym, and I see them on every single 20 or 30-somethings female's feet in the gym. Really? Absolutely. They're everywhere. Now, I have never run in them. And also, Eric, I'm not upset you cheated on me with that question. Uh, valid to direct that at Bracken. So, floor's probably yours. So, my my relationship with on goes back a few years, Kirk. Of course it does. To the beginning. <laughs> when I first tried on on shoes was in Colorado when I was getting beaten up by the mountains out there. I couldn't descend without just taking a massive beating and I couldn't get back home on my runs without descending. So I went to the store and I think I've told this before. I walked out of there with Hocus, Mm -hmm. the Clifton one and the Challenger one. And that's what I ran in for a while until I could, until I could descend. 
But it came down to that and on. Because I put the, the, the Hoka on and I'd never felt such cushion before. And such like a cradle built in there. I felt like I could just sprint down a mountain in these. But the on, I, it was the first time I felt energy return. Hmm. They have their pods at the bottom. They're like little ovals or, or rounded squares of on the bottom of the shoe and they're open and they're supposed to compress and then expand when you run in them. They're just open pods at the bottom. And I'd never felt anything like it. And I tried three on and two of them didn't feel quite right. And the third was just made for my foot. And if I was just buying a running shoe, I actually would have bought that shoe. But I also wanted to be able to go on the trail. And at the time, it, they were just notorious for sticks and stones getting in the open pods at the bottom. Mm. So I didn't get them, but they felt phenomenal. And I've, I've tried a, a few of the shoes along the way, and they always look clean. They're a Swiss brand, and they've got mm. that little Swiss engineering there. They look like a casual shoe that you run in. But I really like the ride in the feel. But they, they're kind of like Hoka. Steve Hammond said this to me about Hoka years ago. He said, not everyone will love every shoe in Hoka, but there is one Hoka that everyone will love. And that's how I feel about on. Not every shoe, they have different density to their pods. I don't know if they call them pods or not. Mm -hmm. And they have different feel and different actual amounts of the pods on the bottom and different shoes. And you won't love every single one, but there's guaranteed one shoe in their lineup that will just feel fantastic to you. So I actually like on shoes. Have you worn the, so you were trying on the trail version of their shoes? I was trying on the road version. They did not have a trail version at the time. Okay. They do now, and I like it. Do hmm. you own one? They, I don't currently have one. They have the um, Cloud Venture and Cloud Venture Peak, and the Peak is the lighter version of it, and they've refined it over time. I know VJ has a pair. He's running a couple of them over the years. I know Gelati has a pair. Okay. I don't know who else that like, we know has them, but they've refined them. Um, it used to be you just, even the first version, you'd get st- stone stuck in the pod, but they've they've worked on that. So I think they're nowadays an actual viable option. I still wouldn't race OCR in them. Okay. But I would I would trail race in them, and I considered it for the Tennessee Mile because I love the energy return of them. Mm. Their appearance doesn't look terribly stable when I look at them. But I have never put one on my foot, so I, I would be curious on very steep descents or very technical terrain. But again, I, this is not from firsthand experience. So, the more technical it got, the more I'd steer away from it. But they also really modify their pods to be a lot more low slung and stable. So hmm. they've they've certainly improved their brand. I like them. Well, I'll tell you what, Eric. The pink ones look cute. The the yellow ones look cute, and the the teal ones look cute. And I know that because. They're in my shoe closet, but they're Jess's. So they're very cute shoes, Eric. So you, you have that going for you either way. And there are some shoes you have to buy just because they look good. Most of them on your wall. You're lucky that they function well also. I am equal parts form and function, Kirk. I wish I could add more to that one. Um, you want to jive in? You got a little more you want to add there? He has second part of this. Okay. Might as well get it. Yep. For an ultra, what capacity hydration pack would you recommend? I have the Solomon 5 liter. I'm assuming it's the Sense 5, unless he has one of the old S-Labs. Hmm. I have, uh, and it's been awesome, and I even have the extra bladder so I can carry more water if I don't want to just use the front flasks. Spartan Ultras have more water station than most mountain ultras, at least in my experience. Could I get away with 5 liter, or would you size up? Absolutely, you can get away with 5 liter if we're talking really any form of ultra outside of extended point-to-point ultras where you got to go hours in between. But mm-hmm. two front flasks, 17 uh, ounces of water roughly in a 500 milliliter flask, 
two of those is going to get you at mm-hmm. minimum in the worst conditions known to man an hour of running yeah most often it's going to get you two plus hours and you're never going farther than that he's talking about the back bladder right the one that will sit on your back like five liters he said um, he has an extra one of those i wouldn't mm-hmm. wear a back bladder personally oh i hate him i don't like the way that sits but it does i mean there's pros and cons right mm-hmm the fronts get in your way when you do walls. The back bladder gets in the way on barbed wire. If it were me, I would be wearing like the two front, uh, the two front bladder vest. And if I was really concerned, I'd put a Nathan waist belt on as well with an extra water in it. And you'd be more than set. I feel like more comfortable than a big five liter sloshing around. That's just my personal yep. preference. And you don't go any further than, gosh, even if you're slogging, I don't know any ultra course that's going to let you be out there for longer than an hour before coming along a water yep. station. So even that, I think you could get away with. But you're right. It's personal preference. Yeah, you choose the one that wears the best on you. Yep. Atkins always wears his, his vests for ultras. I would wear a waist pack. You can, you can refill as much as you want. And if you have, if you can see the, <laughs> the uh, station coming up, which you almost always can, because you're usually climbing in an ultra, you mm-hmm. have time to get your bottle open, and it's a, it's a five to ten second stop. Yep. I mean, my my best way of fueling for an ultra, personally, because I can't stand vests, is I have one bottle, and I have a bunch of spares rolled up with my mix already inside of it, or I have little pouches rolled up and mm-hmm. stuffed in my in my pockets, and that'll get you all day. So yeah, I, I Eric five liter, more than enough. Yeah, I would say almost unnecessary at times, depending on the course layout, unless you get one of those hot days, and there are you know, little sparse between stations. Yeah. Have you ever worn a five liter? I've never chosen to. Yeah. Early on because w- the gear just has really evolved in the last five to 10 years, but I started 11 years ago. Mm-hmm. I wore, um, the ant, the AK, I think 2.0 vest. They're on like the 4.0 now. Mm-hmm. It had hard bottles that were front carried. I loved the idea of front carried, but I hated the hard bottles and they solved that a year later. That shows how yep, yep. old my pack is. And then I wore a um this'll date me, a Geiger rig. It was a it was the one of the first one piece like vest tops that everyone uses now, but it had a um almost like a a hand pump on it that you could inflate and pressurize your bladder so that you could squirt water out. I've seen And them, I thought yeah. that's going to be fantastic. Then I don't have to like <sighs> when I'm trying to take water out of the bladder, but it turned out to be a giant hassle. <laughs> so I hated it. If it's a truly, if it's a, if it's a well-organized race and a well-organized course, I think I am pretty stuck on the Nathan Peak belt and just plan on filling it up and finishing all your water as you approach the next aid station. Um, it just seems like it's just enough if you if you go in well hydrated, unless it's one of those scorchers. I don't see many situations in which you need more. But if you are, not to say, but if you are, and Eric isn't, but like if you are a slower athlete who really is going to take some time out on course, then then those big bladders become more more effective. Yeah. I Tyler Siegel, was, he and I talked at the beginning of a 50K we ran. And look Tyler up if you have if you have a time ever. He's a great runner. He was just tempoing his workout until he got bored of running with me. But he ran with the Solomon vest. And I was talking about he's like, No vest for you. I said, No, I just can't stand vests. I had my I had a different I had the the Vath, the Nathan Vapor Crawler waist belt, which I love. Um it has one glaring weakness of getting the bottle back in, which sucks. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I love it. And he was like, yeah, I just, you got to go with the vest for ultras. It's so much better. I said, I just hate the bounce. He said, just under inflate the flasks. 
and then it sits really nice. Like, just don't fill it all the way up. And then I was thinking about that. Like, well, if you if you underfill it, if it holds 17 and you're filling to like 12, and I've got a full 17 and back here, you don't have that much more mm-hmm. storage than me. What do you have? If I have 17 and you have 22, maybe? Five ounces, yeah. Like five ounces different. So you're still stopping to refill anyways. So am I. I just feel lighter with mine. So I might have to refill two more times throughout the course than you'd. They're easier and quicker to refill, though, that waste pack versus getting them out of your front pockets, yeah. Yeah, so I the math didn't work out to me. It didn't seem to be a net positive mm-hmm. to go with the vest, so I don't have one. Note I wonder about the vest, and then let's move on to our topic today, but is, like, I don't know how women wear those things because women have chests, and I'm a little big, bigger chested as a guy, and it just it extends that chest out so much. It's so bulky in front of me. feels like it pulls me forward, and I already have a forward lean. Then I think about women with boobs running with those things over. I'm like, how do you mm-hmm. do that? I would feel like it's going to just topple me over. So, Some brands work with that. Yeah, I suppose. Some brands get a higher situated bottle, so it's almost up by your clavicle. That'd be better. And then I know Ultra Spire has the Basham. Uh, Amanda Basham, she's an athlete that they sponsor. They have the Basham vest that she designed, and it's a full vest, but it holds like a 20 to 25-ounce flatter bottle in the back. Oh, nice. Like that. Like, sits on the lumbar area. Mm-hmm. So there are brands that have tried to work with this. Um, I, th- I want to say Ultra Aspire is good at it. And then there was one other brand, and I'm blanking, who really did women-specific, mm-hmm. female-specific vests. But uh, – last one um orange mud have you ever seen theirs they have like the bottle holsters yep yep well they have a new or one that just sits like across your chest it's like wearing a a really minimal vest up top and one bottle sits diagonally across your chest and that one looks interesting to me that does sound interesting amanda basham by the way we were supposed to have her on the podcast and we we almost scheduled and something came up so amanda i'm gonna reach out reaching out again we're plugging her stuff, and she had already blew us off. Terrible. Uh, today's topic, I think it's timely. I think it's timely because um, either race dates have been scheduled, whether you're a road or a trail racer. If you're an OCR athlete, um, a lot of the races have been put on the calendar. Last week, we talked about the Spartan U.S. Uh, or the Elite um, North American Series and then the U.S. or North American Age Group Series. Um, and then most of the races have all either opened up registration across the trail nation board or road races. Anyways, now that we kind of know what the year looks like, it's kind of time to talk about how to like plan your racing year. Like what's the way to go about it? Not just close your eyes and pick, of course. So we've never chatted about this on the podcast. I don't believe. No. And you told me this morning you wanted to talk about this. So you don't know what I did this weekend, but this is what I did this weekend. No There's a lot of football on, and I sat there with my laptop, and I just went over and over and over the different races, scheduled all out every race I could possibly want to do this year, re-looked at all the goals I'd written down with Rich Ryan, reprioritized any goals I might have now based off new information we have, and then came up with a a plan of attack for how I train for this calendar year. And yeah. I wrapped that up last night at like... 7 p.m. So, Kirk, this is fresh in my mind. This is like this being in sync thing. I think because we're at two years, Brack, and I think we just get each other. Start to finish each other's meals. <laughs> oh, look at that. 
we would love to finish each other's meals. <laughs> um, all right. So I, I think I want to start with this conversation is looking at like the, the, I, I guess I look at scheduling your season like by uh, pillars, we'll call it like looking at big picture first mm-hmm. and then kind of narrowing it down and shaving off the fat and then going specifics, like with how you pick along the way. So I thought we could talk like generality first, like how we should look at the year as a whole and then like sort of sort of periodize after that. How's that sound, Bragging? That was first step I had to do this weekend, Kirk. Look at the year as a whole. Look at the year as a whole. So I'll start this thing off with saying I really have two main things that I look at when it comes to scheduling your year out. And I recommend this to most of my athletes who I've had this conversation with recently. But there's two main things that I think you should look at if you really give a shit about performance. Now, you have those years where like, hey, I'm just getting into trail racing or I'm just getting into OCR and I just want exposure. And that means like you might race a little too much, but learn a lot. I'm going to take that off the plate for right now. This is like I want to show up and perform well. And I think um, the best way to go about it is to look at two things. The first is that we don't want to race too much, which we've preached on here to no end. I think when you look at the scope of your year, you should look at racing roughly no more often than once every four weeks. And you may be able to string together like a small patch where you do a few back to back or every other week, maybe once or twice throughout the year, if it's well thought out. But as a rule of thumb, you're looking at once a month at at most, if you can, Um, that way you have a little bit of time to recover after your past race, a couple of weeks of good training, and then another laying off the gas as you taper into your next race. So that's the first pillar of the two pillars that I look at as far as as far as overview. What about you? I'll try started. I went through, I pulled up Savage Race, pulled up High Rocks, pulled up DecaFit, pulled up uh, my local trail racing series here, pulled up the road racing series here, uh, stadium series, and wrote down every race that I had any interest in. Uh, and how many were there? I think there were like 52. Holy smokes. And then I went through those and I wrote them all down on the calendar and just got a visual of it. Like, what does this look like? And a lot of them were same weekend and a lot of them were back to back to back weekends, which would have to be with 52 races. Mm -hmm. And look at how that worked out. 52. What a clean number, Kirk. But, and then I just did process of elimination, got rid of the low hanging fruit, things that obviously don't make any sense or things that I did want, but now don't make any sense. Like Jacksonville off the table. doesn't make any sense. It's not part of a series anymore. I have no love for the course. I was going there to try to prove a point to myself in the series. That doesn't make sense anymore. Yep. And then a couple others that I had written down that no longer fit into the scheme of anything. Just wipe them off. There's no stadium series. They haven't announced anything. So I took AT&T Stadium off the schedule because we have a family camping trip that weekend. So did I, I started winnowing away and get down to it. Let's, let's try to get it down to a a manageable number of races. And that was the first thing I did. I like that. How many did you get it down to out of curiosity? 24. Okay. It's not manageable yet, but it still has to be refined by what my next pillar is. So Okay. Okay. Well, then I'll jump into what my next pillar is. And, and I have a third, but the, the first two are, you know, the, the racing once every four weeks at most with maybe one, like I said, intense bout where you might race three out of four weekends. That is okay to do, but you just can't can do, you can't sustain that. And then right. the other thing is most people look pull at my schedule up here while we're talking so that I can actually answer the rest of the questions for you. You keep talking. Yeah, do it. Um, 
And then the other major one is most people look at their year or their season as a calendar year. They're like, well, it's 2022. I'm looking mm-hmm. at this as one big giant year and one big giant season. And that is the first place people go wrong. An entire year is way too long to be up and training and trying to peak um, for 12 straight months or even nine straight months or even six straight months. It's absolutely impossible. So what I tell my athletes to do is you need to break your year. And again, Bracken may not agree with me. This is my own opinion here. This has not been discussed, but um, you need to break your year up into two, two seasons. You need to find a time in the middle of your calendar year to take a mid-year reset and base that off of your racing schedule. Plan to peak twice, meaning peak for an A race and maybe sometime between May and June, July. Take a reset and then pick another big one to peak in later in the year. Because if you take that mid-year reset, you are going to perform much better later in the year versus just slowly fizzle out and, you know, that slow death of tired legs and, and nowhere to go with your fitness. So break up your calendar year into two seasons. Find a stop, a stop and start point middle of the year that makes sense for you and plan on a recovery week in the middle of the year. It's the first two things I tell people to look at before they start making their schedule. How do you feel about that last one? Um, I I guess that that's not one of my core pillars, but it's a part of my process that naturally occurs later. Okay, because I don't I don't structure two big builds. I but I have a natural pause point built into there once I see my schedule. Like this sure. looks here. All right, here's where I'm taking a down point, and probably here I'll take a mini down point, and then I structure around that. So I actually decide my races first. Which is okay, yeah, totally. And then I choose where do I have to, like, you know, pay the piper. So do you always pay the piper every, like, you'll pick a point every calendar year, even mid-year, to take a bit of a reset, no matter what, or no? I put them on there. Like, I, I have it, I have always a, a, a shaded out week following a certain event that this is my planned break. But life's so unpredictable that I don't schedule my whole year around that because I might have had a rolled ankle two weeks prior to that and right, taken 10 right. days off. So, yeah, I, I do put them in there. And I usually have like three. Okay. But I don't take like 10, 20 days off. It's usually like a big down week. So, And I would say 50% of the time do I end up sticking to those weeks. Well, right. Other times they've I have surgery. <laughs> hopefully never again um yeah you're right and but you have to start somewhere right you have to at least yeah. lay something out shit happens and stuff changes all the times like you said you get injured family stuff comes up da, 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 you miss races who knows so like but you got to start so you have to start somewhere right so yeah that's those are the just like the starting point because a lot of people look at the schedule and it's overwhelming and they don't have rhyme or reason to why or when they're scheduling their races that that sounds fun or that looks good or that one's close to me. And pretty soon they have this haphazard schedule where it's really kind of a, a death sentence for your fitness, but as slowly as the season goes on. And so just looking at those, you have to, like I said, you have to have some sort of principles when you do this. And those are, those are my two. Yeah. What about you? What else you got? What do you start with? The next thing I do is I look, so I have it down to 17 races. So I had, tw- I had it down to 24 I had 52, then got down to 24 just by getting rid of races that really don't make sense and maybe push them to next year or or whatever that's going to be. And then the next thing I do is I look at what my actual goals are. Sure. So I have all these things I'd like to do, but 
do any of them actually align with what I want out of my year athletically? So like I had made a list with Rich Ryan of six big goals for the year. And three of them don't track anymore. One of them was make a U.S. National Series podium. Well, there isn't a U.S. National Series. Now it's a Mm -hmm. North American Elite Series. And there's only one race on the entire calendar that even has a remote amount of interest for me. And that would be the the Canada Mountain Race. Okay. How come slow doesn't interest you? I really just am not good in California. Mm. The terrain out there, the style of running, just like, speaks to my worst characteristics sounds like it's taking place in some sort of vineyard i would like to go out there it's beautiful but if i'm if i'm if my goal is to make a u.s national series podium it's not going to be in california even when i was at my best i don't know if i ever i never made it a national series podium in california okay and i don't think i was ever close i think I was, i'd be like sixth seventh there when i'd be like first or second that year on the other style of courses so it's just it's uh the rolling everything lasts for a long time just mm-hmm. doesn't work for me. Got it. So anyways, not till October would that goal even have a chance of being addressed. And I don't even know like what's Canadian travel going to look like at that point. So that goal is right away off there. Second one was win the stadium series. Well, they're not going to have a stadium series, so that one's off the board. So yeah. then I could go through and cut a few stadiums out that I don't want to go to. But I would have done it for the series. So I started looking at what my actual goals for the year were. And then there were a few races that I considered iffy, but it really aligned with one of my endurance goals for the year. So I bolded them and put a color to it. So now, yeah, let's go do that one. And then some that I thought were important don't even matter to the goal. And it was already kind of going to be a life hassle to get to. So let's get rid of that one. Okay. So you're at 17 right now. So I have 17, but of those, I think... I'm just going to count out loud here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten are using a faded color because they're, uh, it'd be cool if it happens and I'm not setting my season around it. Got it. So I have seven races that I actually want to do and three of them right now are bolded with a vibrant color, which means I have three races that matter to me this year. Currently on this date, three of them. So that's my next process. Right. You let me write. That's okay. Then we have the same next process. You let me write into my next point is then you got to look at what you've come up with. Deductive, the deduct as you go and start prioritizing. And then you can come up with two to four A races, maybe six at most, but ideally where like the ones that are like the pillars that you mm-hmm. ultimately, when it comes to your training and you don't know which way to go, they always take priority in your decision-making with the workouts you choose, the volume you run, the terrain you pick. Everything comes back to, well, your three highlighted races right now, for example. So after you have it, yep. that schedule popped up, yep, then highlight a few just like you did. And and I have my athletes do the same thing. Um, so we're on the same page there. I, I wanted to ask, I didn't give you the opportunity to talk about this, but how often do you think, if you look at the season or the year as a whole, how often do you think one should should race? Because there's... There's two sides of that coin. Some people race so little that maybe you lose touch with reaching mm-hmm. your top end ability. And then some people re- race so damn much that you can't even keep tabs on what's really going on. So like, where do you fall in that? Like, where, what do you think the, the athlete who cares about their performance should, should fall? It's so individual. I can't, I can't even make a blanket statement. The athlete who cares because we've had world champions who care, who race 30 times in a year. And we've had a world champion who raced like three times in a year. Mm, and they both true. cared equally. So 
for I can only answer to me personally. And I, I guess maybe it is a blanket statement. You have to race infrequently enough to get real training in and frequently enough to not get rusty. Yep. I agree. So for me, when I start looking at a calendar, like right now I have three grayed out in a row that lead to one that I want to do for sure in a row. So four weekends in a row and I get nervous seeing that. I get nervous anytime I like, I get a feeling of foreboding anytime I don't see like at least four blank weeks in between. I think ideally for we, me, I'd race every four to six weeks. Yep. I like having a full training block. And I don't mind if races pop up and I jump into them because then they replace OCR workout days. Yep. But I can't have races that truly matter to me every single month. It just doesn't work for me. I think six weeks in five to six weeks in between races is perfect for me. Mm-hmm. But that might contain like a trail race, a minor OCR, and then a long run and a, like a long mountain day. But something where your training isn't compromised in the lead up that week into these smaller races. So you're yeah. still... I don't want to taper and recover more than once every five to seven weeks. Exactly. That's that's exactly it. When you swing the hammer, you, you plan to swing it hard and that's going to require a taper and then some recovery afterwards. Yeah. And are there going to be times that I've raced well back to back weeks? Sure. Mm-hmm. But then that requires like a legitimate lead in and a legitimate lead out. And I don't like playing that game. I like, I'm comforted. My fitness and my confidence is comforted by uninterrupted weeks of training. If you think back, so I thought about this before we, we talked about this today, thinking back, okay, what's the longest streak? Even in college, we raced every weekend or every week. So we raced once a week, high school. So that's all we knew initially, right? And then... Once in a while, we put together these streaks of races where, you know, I've raced four weekends in a row in OCR or trail racing at, at my peak. Um, and the longest I've made it through all of those, through high school, through college, through OCR, through adult life, um, I've made it three weekends in a row racing well and being happy with my performances for three. Um, I've never made it further than that. And, and again, we could race for up to 10 weeks straight in college. And I'd I'd either lay an egg or be like, it's just not there today. Or like I'd have an off day, but three weeks is the longest I've made it in a row before I need a serious reset. And a serious reset could mean like a full recovery week, a full two, three weeks of training again before I race well again. So three weeks is my longest. And that's with everything going perfectly. What is yours? Can you think back? Two. Two. Okay. I don't think I've ever PR'd more than two weeks in a row. I, uh, yeah. And, and for me, like it's very mental, I believe. I don't need a down week. I just need a week where I don't have to like, and it's going to sound super dramatic, but like prepare to lose my life on the course. Mental bandwidth is real when it comes to things like this. Because I believe that you have to, uh, the preparation for a race digs into your mental reserves. 100%. And I don't want to make it seem like we're warriors or we're soldiers because we're not. But you have to have the mindset of whatever it takes on this race, no matter how miserable it gets. Like when I'm at my best, I'm willing to endure anything. And I think most people at their best are, it's, hey, I'm in it. Whatever's going to happen, I'm prepared for. And if you black out, you black out. Like that's, yeah. I, I haven't always had that, but when I'm at my best, I'm there. And that takes some of your mental reserves to get up for that. And there's only so many times you can get up for it. A lot of times we talk about there's only so much like mental pain you can take in a year, but I think there's only so many efforts you can get up for and be prepared to do so, even if you don't end up needing to do it. There are some races where I was ready to, you know, quote unquote, die out there. Mm-hmm. That's not truly it, but you're ready to go out there and, and thrash yourself and you didn't have to. But it still requires like some some aftercare to get away from it and not have to get up to 
get to that mental place again. And there's only two, I think twice in a row. Can I do that before I need to, like, I can go right back to hard training. I just can't expect myself to be ready to be in that place again. Yeah. And maybe I got lucky with three in a row, but a lot of times it's stopped at two for sure. And that means even like for me, it means sure. I have a great race and then I have another great race the next weekend. And then the third weekend I go out for like a quality day on my own and I'm empty. My legs are gone that whole following week. Rent always pays due as, as you like to say, or comes due. And it's like, it just, it always happens. So, but you can get away with it, but then eventually it'll catch up with you. So you've realized that. Even in college, like I would get in rhythms, but it would be, it would last for like a week or two. Like I'd, I'd realize like, I'm just going to PR for a little bit here. (laughs) That's cool. Like at the conference meet, I remember one year I got in there and I realized I'm going to PR every race I run this weekend. Like I'm just dialed in. But by the end of the weekend, I'd run three races, hit three PRs, made it to finals, you know, nailed it, PR'd again. And it's like, man, I cannot race again (laughs) for a couple of weeks because like, it just takes a, a lot out of you. I miss those weekends. Those are some fun weekends, Bracken. What do you think? Um, so l- l- let's shift then to the next thing, which I think we should talk about. And that, this is the I want to do everything person, which means, um, you know what? I want to race road 5Ks, but I have a half Ironman also on my schedule this year. I want to run high rocks, but I also have a Spartan Ultra I'd like to do. You have all these things that are so polar opposites in a sense, like at least from the 10,000-foot view. And if you're going to attempt to periodize a year, like one, do you believe it matters that you can go from a 5k road race to a mountain ultra within the same month? Or do you believe that you really need to start like splitting hairs here with your decision-making process? Like how a season should build in that regard? What do you think? Well, I am a believer that you can be a jack of all trades, but I think you have to admit that you will be a master of, of one. I don't think it's master of none. I think it's master of one. Mm-hmm. Like you still have your natural skill set that you're going to be best at. But I think we also have to admit that we are not Ryan Atkins or Chris Roglowski or John Albin who can win at all of them <laughs> without addressing maybe any of them in training other than the one thing that they're currently doing. So, like I, I mean, I've, I've personally done these things. I ran a, a good road mile like seven or 10 days before my, my trail 50 K because they're complementary skills in a weird way for me. But I think it's identifying which one do I have to train for to be able to still do the other one. Yeah. So I, I like to tell people we can race anything you want, but you have to choose which ones you expect to be really good at and which ones you expect to do the best that you can do at. Yep. And I think that's an important mindset shift from I'm going to do great at all of them to I'm going to do great at this. And it's going to be cool to see how well I can do this one in conjunction with the rest of the training I'm doing. 100%. I, I believe that you have enough. You can do it all if the puzzle pieces are moved correctly. I do have like one, like if you're going to make decisions based on something, um, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of allowing shorter and faster races before longer grindier ones but i am very much not a fan of being like having a long grindy race and then following up in in close weeks something shorter and faster and more intense yes so this sounds like you're on the same page so like if you're going to look at a schedule shift it's just shorter stingy efforts set you up to be much more comfortable in long grindy ones but what happens is when you race a long grindy race and then try to go out and run a fast spartan sprint course that pain is much more intense than you're used to. And that turnover isn't quite back yet. So 
I'm a big proponent of shorter, faster stuff before a long grindy effort for sure on the schedule. But the opposite of that, I steer clear of as best I can. Um, because typically you're going to set yourself up to have a really rough go at those shorter races following a really long one. Yeah. And short, nasty stuff stings, but it's superficial. Yeah. Like it's over and you're recovered in 72 hours at max and you're fine. An ultra depletes you at a very deep level. Your your stores are depleted. You're, you're like, everything's eroded and it takes time to be able to even go hard again. 100%. Like if I had to run a one mile race and a 100 mile race, I would race an all out mile the day before a hundred mile race if I had to. And I don't know how much it would compromise my 100 mile race. Exactly. It might, if I was going to cramp, I might just cramp a little earlier. But if I had to run the 100 mile race, I don't know if I'd want to try to run a mile PR for like, like five or six weeks after the 100 at a minimum. Minimum. It is a one way tunnel. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, let's say you have an ultra or a 50k trail race or even like a half marathon on the roads. If you have a a 5k that pops up the weekend before that excites you or a shorter Spartan race, like green light, go ahead. That's a nice tapering, Mm -hmm. tapering effort before going into the one that really matters. But again, if you had a half marathon or a ultra the week or two before the Spartan sprint, um, you're just setting yourself up to be disappointed with your results. So I'm glad we agree on that. You gave me that advice this year. You said, go run city field. It's going to be over in 20 to 30 minutes. And it's going to make that six-hour ultra sting a little less. Yeah, before the Tennessee Mile. It's true. And you had a great – and your body felt pretty good in the Tennessee Mile, didn't it? Yeah. Came together. Couldn't have done it the other order. Oh, that would be terrible. So this leads me into my final pillar for building a season. Sure. Which is, for the vast majority of athletes, engine, aerobic engine, wins out. So you have to train to the longer event and skill work to the shorter event. Yep. If you want to do an ultra and a 5K, you want to do that all, that's great. But you have to build your engine for your most demanding event and use your little skill work, your supplemental work, to be ready for a mile or a 5K. But you cannot build a 5K engine and try to use skill work to get you ready for a 6, an 8, a 10-hour event. It's not, for most people, it's not going to translate that way. That way. Some mm-hmm. people who are extremely good naturally at endurance will need to spend a good amount of time working speed to get anything out of their running but most people you can always race down but it is really tough to race up in distance and we've said that many times on here yep you make a great point i'm glad you brought that up because i would have left it out but we had this question in the running public facebook group not too long ago where somebody said i don't i have some beasts on the plan i have some sprints and supers and they said, I don't know. On the, on the running public training plan, we basically prescribe three durations for every workout based on your goal races. And the answer to his question was, or his question was, I don't know which distance to pick for each day because I want to do all these different races of different distances. And the answer was the longer race always sets precedence and should, should be the pillar for your decision making. Because if you fall short on your build for that, everything else is going to crumble and, and setting yourself up for that longer race is only going to build better aerobic engine for the mm-hmm. shorter ones. And so, um, always, yeah, setting precedence and making priority for the longer race is, is exactly right. And so much anaerobic progression can be done aerobically that mm-hmm. you combine that with a little bit of speed skill and you're going to be pretty darn close to ready for a short race based off training for a long race. For mm-hmm. most people, there will always be exceptions. But so that's how I look at my season now. 
I've got my three highlighted races and I say, which one could I not survive off the training for the others? Because if you're worried about survival, you're not ready. But if you can survive your best one, the other ones, it all comes down to skill requirements. So then I prioritize where does my engine have to be for the worst one? And then the the best ones, then I can use my natural skill set and some little supplemental workouts. And as we get close to that one, some specific work. But then I start to lay out how does my volume and my actual progression for the year work. Yep. So note it, it wasn't, all right, I've got to get this, this, and this done. It's where do I absolutely need to be by here? And then how do I address the races along the way? Not how do I address seven races to get to the eighth? How do I get to the eighth and still make sure that I can do the others. Yeah. And I think that's a very important way of looking at it. Or make sure, like, if, if you move the puzzle pieces around appropriately, those B or C races leading into your A races can be looked at as training and plugged in with purpose to fit right into your training cycle. So, and, and again, we're talking, like, when I say, like, oh, you give a shit about your performance and that's what we're honing in on, like, I understand there's a whole host of you out there listening who are just not just but you're out there for the experience like you either want to learn something you're you're learning your new fitness and body and exposure to races is super important for taking big jumps in in your performance right and so this doesn't necessarily apply to everybody i do think like the newbie who let's say just picked up running in the last six months or is curious about ocr you know what you might be the athlete where i say hey if you want to race 15 times 20 times this year you know what, go ahead, take this as your learning year. And then, you know, year two, we can get down to business with performance if you would like. So um, I do I do think that there's like a caveat to our pillars and that Correct. is the learning curve, which, heck, you did that when you first got into Spartan. Um, granted, there was, you know, dollar signs in your pupils. It was, you were race like, didn't you race like 25 times or something? Some, some crazy, probably closer mm-hmm. to 30. 30, so... Because I was still doing trail races and local stuff because I, I felt it kept me sharp. Yeah. So we all go through that phase. We do it in track. You do your learning phase where you race every week, all year long, and you do mm-hmm. it cross country. And you got to have your, you got to learn to race. Yeah. So if you're one of those people, just know like, hey, it's okay. Like you're not an idiot for racing a bunch. It might actually be the smart decision to do so. And then you mm-hmm. can somewhat ignore the principles we're talking about. So um, should we recap or do you have one more you want to you wanna toss out there? I just want to drive it home with this. The last race on my calendar currently, there's one shaded after it that could happen, is a shorter race. Okay. It's one of the shorter races I'll do. And it's arguably my most important race. So if it's going to be a 20-minute or less race, if I've dedicated my whole year to that race, one big mistake people would have is just, I've just got to work on my speed this year. I just got to work on my speed. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, what's 20 minutes of work? It's still predominantly driven by aerobic capacity. Yep. Anaerobic capacity certainly matters, but that can be addressed in little microcycles throughout the time and probably, what, four to six week blocks at max, three to five yeah, I was weeks. I say three to six, yeah. So rather than saying, all I want to do is get faster for this and along the way lose every endurance event I want to do. It's let's see how big I can get my engine by like August. And then we can start sharpening down if need be. But Mm -hmm. you can always sharpen down quickly and it builds upon what you have. But you can't expand up quickly because you're not building. You're just 
really developing resistance to impact if you expand volume quickly, but you're not building any sort of usable engine piece if you try to sharpen up. Yeah, no, totally. It's like you're crafting this giant sword all season long with your aerobic work and long stuff, and all you got to do is just sharpen the tip of that thing at the end, and that's going to give you all the performance you mean. But the pillar of your fitness is that big sword, and its shiny little sharp tip just takes a little refining at the end, and that's all you need, man. So true. Kirk, that is... That might be your best analogy you've had. No. Yeah, Lisa and I got away a while back, and we had a weekend away, and we ended up watching like half of a season of Forged in Fire, Forged by Fire. Okay, I haven't haven't seen it. It's a a reality show on um, blacksmithing, basically, weapon-making masters, where they make medieval weaponry. And it's fascinating. They always start with this giant, dull lump of metal or steel. And all of their work, like 90% of their time is spent shaping and and hardening and making sure that every piece of it is hammered through and refined and dense and compacted and dense and dense and dense and dense and dense with no weaknesses. And it doesn't even begin to look like a blade until like the last day or two they work on it. Mm. And then suddenly it's this brutal sharp killing machine at the end but all the work was done making it to the point where now we can actually think about sharpening and i love that that's exactly how you have to build your running kirk there we go i don't even watch that weird show it was weird and it was engaging it it sucked us in got it so to recap now this is just my opinion again is i think you know, racing less often than more is always a good thing for performance because you need to taper in and then recover and then have some training time on your hands. Again, it's my philosophy to to plan in a break every year, not like one break a year at the end of the year, but plan in basically two cycles per year. Uh, Bracken, it sounds like you're a little more loose with the way you do that, but you do plan in mm-hmm. downtime. You can't push for, you know, six, even six months straight you can't push for, in my opinion. You're going to have to have some downtime in there. So make sure you plan that accordingly. Your A races always take priority, and they're the master of your decisions when it comes to training, interval sessions, quality days, terrain choice, skill work. They always take precedence over your B races. And then I think that's really it if you really want to dumb it down. Mm-hmm. Right? And then train to the hardest event. Hard. And sharpen down from there. Yeah. So I, I just see, like, I don't know about you, but I feel like my athlete schedules have, have started to roll in now, you know? And you're starting, starting to put the puzzle pieces together in your brain as to how you wanna you wanna program for them, and so it's a top of mind for me. Clearly, it's top of mind for you. I haven't done it yet. Now, I, I have not uh, done mine yet. Um, I'm trying to figure out what the heart wants right now. Yeah, me too. Here's what I've settled on, Kirk. I will know everything I need to know about my year in terms of direction and what I'm truly going to do by july 31st okay i'll have raced by that point i'll have raced a stadium a road mile a super potentially a beast and a decafit where are we going to cross paths this year if at all bracken we have not really raced each other because you calf strain in jacksonville and that would be it when when are we gonna toe the line Well, I'm not sure, but the point is that by July 31st, I will have all the information on myself as an athlete and mentally as an athlete, physically and mentally, to know what I'm going after in the second half. 
Okay. Because there, there's two potential routes for the second half of my year for what I really focus on. And by July 31st, I will know how this entire rebuild has gone and what my skill set's pointing me towards. And then I think at that point, we'll know where we're going to cross paths. Okay. All right. Are you are you for sure going to the Abominable Snow Race in a week and a half? Is it a week and a half? I believe so. Make that 18 races, Kirk. <laughs> so I'm contemplating coming down for that just to see you and have some fun. Um, I'm also contemplating just going to SoCal on a whim just to go play. Um, and I'm also contemplating training all the way through until slow in March. Oh, sorry. That's what I thought you mean. Yeah, I fully support slow. Yeah, slow. I think I'll give a crack, and then. Um, but I'm I'm just entertaining. Just like you, when you talked about like exposure to racing enough to stay sharp and be mm-hmm. ready for the sting, I find value in that for me more than I've realized. And so uh, there's nothing. It's like fifty fifty. But point being is maybe we could cross paths at Abominable. We could if we get dumped on with snow. I'll absolutely go. What do you have now? <laughs> Almost no snow. Oh, we got a bunch here. I can't even trail run because there's just patches of ice, and then the rest is clear. Oh. I mean, I could, but it's ice spikes for the ice, and then you're just running on rocks and roots with spikes, which you can, or you just avoid the ice the whole time. So I've, mm. like, we don't even really have snow, Kirk. We've had one legitimate snowfall, and that was now three weeks ago, and it was only two inches or three inches. We must have a couple of feet stacked up now here. Uh, so let's work on wrapping this up. I just want to ask you, um, because you're coming off of COVID. Everybody knows you're racing High Rocks this weekend with Callie, which was our recent guest on Friday. Um, how you feeling? You feel like the body's going to come around and, and you're ready? I'm the eternal optimist about that. I always think I can pull things off. But we're going to find out uh, this afternoon. I'm going to do a, a High rock specific Metcon with some of the movements I'm going to have to be able to do. So burpee broad jumps, weighted lunges, some hard rowing, and some hard ski erg. Okay. And if I can do that stuff... That like, I, I'm assuming this is going to be a rip the bandaid off workout where I got to like break some stuff up in my lungs oh, still. And yeah. And then Wednesday I'll do some quicker running and then some skier and rowing like skill work, but just fast enough to burn a little bit. And if I can get through those two fine, then I mean, either way, I'm going to, I'm going to rev it, but mm-hmm. I'll, I'll be confident doing so if I can get through these two workouts and hopefully like get the bad stuff out of the way now. I find, and we've talked about this before, but when you're sick or coming off of being sick, the short, sharp stuff just hurts so much and you're not ready. Like I can go out and do a long run while I'm sick at like a comfortable effort, Mm -hmm. but when you get that heart rate up, it does not want to come back down if there's still some virus left in you, some residuals. So I think you need to break through some rust. I just hope you don't set yourself back, you know. I did Saturday. Friday? Saturday. I thought I was turning the corner. And so I did like a 90% 2K row time trial. Eek. How'd it go? Uh, well, during it, I've never done a 2K row. It's been on my so painful. for a long time, but I didn't have a rower. And then I got a rower and I didn't have technique to do it. And I've been working on technique and then I got COVID. What'd you hit? I'm curious. I went 714. Oh, not bad. At about 90%. And then two days later, I did 704 at about 95%. If you break seven, you're you're legit. Like you get under seven, that is no easy task. I could go under seven right now if I thrash myself. When I was rowing a lot in my injured days, I was rowing like twice a week, which I considered a lot in combo. I think I went six 
636 or 639 and it was probably the most painful six and a half minutes of my life i would rival that over a mile or over anything it is absolutely terrible i think i could go about 650 oh i I don't know way i'd break seven i haven't been on a row in a while now but but i've been working on my form and i have uh i have long limbs for a runner at least no so i i I made the mistake anyways the point is the first time i did it i coughed and felt sick for the next two hours so I wasn't ready, and it probably set me back a couple days. But then two days later, I did it, and I was I was faster. I gave a little more effort, but I didn't have, like, the, oh, shoot, what did I do for the next few hours? Lisa came in that first day. She's like, are you okay in there? I'd been sitting on the toilet for, like, 30 minutes. Doing what? Just waiting for something to happen. I just felt so <laughs> terrible. I thought I might as well be here when it hits. <laughs> you got Dayquil, Dayquil belly plus... I hadn't used any Dayquil. Mm. I, I didn't use it nearly as much as uh, Lisa's story probably made it seem. Oh, okay. Probably used it once a day four times. That's not so bad. Um, anyways, then I made the mistake of texting Hunter. I said, hey, what's your what's your 2K PR? He said 607. Oh, that's ridiculous. Like, I'll get out of here. I can't even imagine. Well, well, Bracken, good luck. Go get him. I'll be you, very Chris. much looking forward to – well, I'll know before – you know, our next training Tuesday, how it all went. But um... here's the biggest issue. The biggest issue is the samples I ordered shipped from China and they are held up in Anchorage right now. They were held up in Korea samples of, of our running public racing tops. Hmm. And now they're in Anchorage as of Friday and I, they have not updated yet. So I don't know if they're going to arrive in time for the race. And that's my biggest worry is what if I can't race in those beautiful new tops? fingers crossed for you is there one for cali too well i have two we had a naming issue with our team because she runs under ian um she has hosick pe performance or hosick performance engineering or something but yeah there's a little conflict of interest there so we named both in the team name it's it's hse times trp so right. I think we'll probably wear different things, but I'll bring it for her if she wants it. But they got to get – if they don't show up, I'm not going. All right. That's not true, but I know that's not true. No, I have my other singlet still. <laughs> I know you do, and they look good. Um, thanks for listening, guys. As always, we'll see you on Friday. Tuesday.